Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to see you all today. So today we'll be continuing our series through Paul's letter to the Philippians. So our focus will be on chapter 2, verses 12 to 13. But let's read together from the beginning of chapter 2 to get a sense of the immediate context. So Philippians chapter 2, beginning at verse 1 down to verse 13. And we read, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we gather here this morning to worship you and learn of your your deeds and your plan for us in your word, Lord, we ask that you would be gracious to us, sharpen our hearts from being dull, open our minds, open our ears to be able to hear your word so that your word can come into our lives and take effect and bring about the change that it is destined to do. So Lord, bless us in this way, and we ask these things only in the matchless name of Christ Jesus. Amen. So, before we begin looking at the portion of scripture which will be our focus this morning, let's briefly recap what we've learned so far in chapter 2. In the last two sermons, we looked at the humility of Christ and his subsequent exaltation. Now, the reason we focus on Christ's humility and exaltation was because Paul used those two truths as examples to the Philippians. You see, he was admonishing them to unity and to service to one another. And so humility would be necessary if they were to live in the way that Paul was calling them to live. And so the only way that they could understand just what he was calling them to was to show them Christ and how he humbled himself and then how, as a result, God exalted him. So humility has been the main theme throughout chapter 2, as Paul teaches the Philippians. His goal in all of this had been to encourage the Philippians and to spur them on to righteous living. Paul wanted them to be of one mind in terms of 
the essential truths and doctrines of the Christian faith. He wanted them to love one another sacrificially, thinking of others as being more important than themselves, looking to the interests of others over their own interests. He wanted them to have the mind of Christ and to be like him. That has been his goal so far throughout uh, chapter 2. And so Paul's work of encouraging them to righteous living continues here in the portion of text that we're dealing with this morning. He says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. The basic idea that Paul is communicating here in these verses is this. Be diligent in your Christian walk, since God is at work in you for his pleasure. What we'll see this morning is that a Christian's life is to be marked by spiritual striving as opposed to spiritual laziness. We'll see that the way a Christian's life is lived is serious business. After all, God is involved in it for his own pleasure. We shouldn't take that lightly. Thus we ought to ensure that day by day we are wholly giving ourselves over to making sure that God is pleased with us. Finally, we'll receive some encouragement regarding our weaknesses before God, since God is the one who is empowering all of our good works. So we're going to flesh out these ideas more as we go on, but again, the main idea here is we are to be diligent in our Christian walk since God is at work for us. God is at work in us, rather, for his pleasure. Now, verse 12 begins by saying, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence. So when studying the scriptures, we must always remember to get the context for the portion of the scripture that we're dealing with from the portion of scripture that came before it. And this is, is especially the case when Paul uses words like, therefore, as he does at the beginning of verse 12. That's an obvious sign that what Paul is about to say is closely related to what he has just finished saying. In this particular case, Paul is saying, because of what I've just told you about Jesus, you should be obedient. So what did he just tell them about Jesus? Well, look back at verse 8. It says, Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Jesus humbled himself and obeyed the Father by going to the cross to die for the sins of those who would believe in him. So the conclusion that Paul is coming to is this. Christ was obedient to the Father, therefore you must be obedient to the Father. Those who are in Christ, those who belong to Christ, those who are Christians, they must be like Christ and follow Christ. So as Christ obeyed, we are to obey. And notice also, Paul commands them regarding sincere obedience. We're not talking about the kind of obedience that is displayed by eye servants. The kind of obedience that only takes place when the master is around to watch you. Rather, we're talking about the kind of obedience that has its root in our hearts. The kind of obedience that seeks to keep God's commands even when there's no overseer watching us. 
Clearly, the Philippians were obedient to Paul when he was physically with them. But now that he was far away, Paul encourages them to continue their obedience, even to be all the more obedient. You know, I think it's significant that he commands them to be all the more obedient. And this is in light of his absence. The significance is that obeying when no one is around to hold you accountable says a lot about how sincere you are in your pursuit of honoring God. For those of us who call ourselves Christians, the diligence with which we obey God says a lot about our profession of faith. To be blunt, it says a lot about whether or not we have really uh, believed in Christ and repented of our sin and been saved. Remember that Christ said, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. The implication there being that if you don't keep his commandments, then you don't love him. And therefore, show yourself to be outside the faith. There is a clear link between one's obedience to God and one's salvation. That is to say that those who have truly been saved display the marks of a true believer. In this case, obedience to God. Now to further clarify, I'm not saying that performing acts of obedience to God is what saves you. Certainly not, since that would be salvation by works. I'm saying that obedience to God is important evidence that a person is saved. So again, I say, the diligence with which we obey God says a lot about our profession of faith. So having said all that, Paul is commanding the Philippians to obey. So let's look at what he's specifically commanding. He says to them, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. So what exactly does it mean to work out your own salvation? Now I think it's necessary to elaborate on this because some could easily wrongly interpret this command to mean that we are to bring about our own salvation. Or to put it another way, that we, through our own work and effort, are to save ourselves from our sin. That through our own work and effort, we are to make ourselves acceptable to God. That is not what Paul is saying. Scripture is replete with the teaching that salvation is by grace, through faith, and not of works, so that no man may boast. We can't save ourselves through our own work and effort. So what is Paul saying? The only valid sense in which we can interpret working out our own salvation is being diligent to manifest the works that should be present as a result of our salvation. I'll say it again. Being diligent to manifest the works that should be present as a result of our salvation. For example, we can be said to be working out our salvation when we perform loving and gracious acts to each other because such acts have their basis in our salvation because such acts are manifestations of our salvation we can be said to be working out our salvation when we flee from all kinds of immorality and instead do works of righteousness because such behavior is consistent with someone who has salvation from sin you see what I mean? You could say that the working out of our salvation is seen in the outworking of our salvation. Doing the things that are expected of us as persons who have been saved 
and given new hearts and new desires. Remember again what our Lord said. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. You'll obey God and do his will. You'll do the things that saved people are supposed to do. You'll do the good works that are consistent with the faith that you hold. You'll work out your salvation. You'll show it forth. We'll actually cover this in the next sermon, but just a few verses later, Paul tells them that they are to be lights in the world. That they are to show out their salvation. To let their salvation be on display by the good works that they do. So that's what's in view when Paul says to the Philippians, work out your own salvation. So not only does Paul give us the command to work out our own salvation, he also teaches us the seriousness with which we must do it. There's of course a qualifier attached to this command. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. So we are to do the good works that are in keeping with our salvation, and we are to do them with fear and trembling. So again, what does Paul mean by this? Is he saying that when we do the things that are expected of saved and redeemed people, that we should be trembling with fear as we do them? For example, if you have a sick brother or sister, and out of compassion and care, you go and visit them with some soup, should you be shaking with dread as you approach the door? And I guess that would depend on just how sick or contagious your friend is. But seriously, what is, what is Paul saying it should be like to work out your own salvation when he says to work it out with fear and trembling? Well, for us to understand just what Paul means, we need to once again remind ourselves of the larger context so far given to us in chapter 2. Remember that Paul, since the beginning of chapter 2, had been admonishing the Philippians to unity. Rather, to humility. That was the overall thing, humility. That was the whole purpose for him using our Lord Jesus as the prime example. And so that admonishment to humility is actually continuing here. Look at what Paul says in verse 13. He says, For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work, for his good pleasure. In other words, when you do good works, it is God who has given you the desire to even want to do good, and it is God who has also given you the strength to carry out those good works. It's really just as Jesus said, on your own, you can do nothing. I want to focus on the fact that everything good in us is as a result of God's work. So in trying to understand the fear and trembling Paul is talking about, we need to ask this question. How should we think about the outworking of our salvation in light of the fact that all of our good intentions and deeds come from God? Should the truth of that stir up pride and haughtiness in our hearts? No. It's quite the opposite. After all, what is there to be proud about? You've not done anything good on your own. Everything good about you is a work of God. So in light of the truth of verse 13, we should be made humble. You see? Once again, humility is what is in view. The context that will help us understand the fear and trembling we're to have is humility. Recognizing that everything about our salvation 
It's God's doing. So what does this have to do with fear and trembling? Well, think about it. If there was no working of God in you, you would actually be in serious trouble. If there was no working of God in you, you would never have believed in Christ and still be dead in your sin. If there was no working of God in you, you would be utterly unable to do anything that pleased God and you would be worthless. If everything that is good and pleasing to God comes from God and the work that He does in the sinner, and this includes everything from salvation itself to the good works that accompany salvation, if all of that is God's work, then you can have no salvation and no good works apart from the work of God. There would be nothing pleasing to God in you, in and of yourself. The fear and trembling that Paul is talking about comes from the recognition that by ourselves, we can do no good. It comes from the recognition that unless we are connected to the true vine that is Christ Jesus, there is no hope for us. If you're a believer hearing me this morning and you've never felt this fear and trembling that Paul is talking about, all you need to do is imagine being without God. Even as you sit here this morning, secure in the knowledge that God has promised to never let you go, just imagine what would happen if he had never taken hold of you in the first place. It's like a man that goes skydiving. Now that man can be sure that his parachute will deliver him to the ground safely. He can be sure that all the wires are connected properly and all of the fabric is woven together strong and that he is safe and secure in this parachute. But all he has to do as he slowly drifts down is imagine what would happen if he didn't have that parachute? What would happen if he were left alone in the sky to fall? All he has to do is imagine being without his parachute and how hopeless he would be in that situation. You bet you can be fearful. When he sees the dizzying height and how small everything below him looks, he imagines flailing helplessly, helplessly through the air like a rag doll, unable to do anything to save himself. Knowing that However long his fall is, there's absolutely nothing he can do. Even before he hits the ground, he might as well already be dead. It's utterly hopeless. Perhaps, as he imagines it, his heart would start to pound and he would go pale in the face for a moment. And he would tremble with fear. He trembled at the thought of being without his parachute. Shuddering at the thought of falling to his death. What a terrifying thought. But here's the thing. The fear and trembling at the thought of being without his parachute would only cause him to cling more tightly to it. When he snaps out of that horrific daydream and he comes back to the reality that he's secure, it only causes him to tighten his grip on his parachute. To continue making sure that he's operating it in the right way such that it continues to bear him up and continues to take him to the ground safely. He recognizes that without his parachute, he is hopeless. And so with fear and trembling, he clings to it all the more. 
This should help us understand what Paul is saying here in verses 12 and 13. We know that Jesus has promised to hold us secure and to keep us from stumbling and to preserve us until the end and to finish the good work that he began in us. But all we need to do is imagine, just for a second, what would happen if we had not been saved by Christ. To imagine the hopelessness of our situation. Continuing to be dead in our sins and under the wrath of God. Falling into eternal hell. Burning forever in darkness. In a place where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Forever and ever and ever and ever. There's no rest day and night. Conscious eternal torment. Think about that. Let that thought sink in for a second. But, remember that the reality is, if you are in Christ, that far from being alone and hopelessly falling into hell, you are secure in the hands of God. After thinking about what it would be like to be without God, remembering your salvation should cause you to cling all the more to Christ. It should cause you to continue walking in the faith. To continue doing the things that serve as evidence that you have been saved. Every day you should seek to cling more and more to Christ and let the evidence that he is working in you shine forth. Let it be that day by day you are sure that you have believed in the name of Jesus and that his work in you is clear evidence of that. Continue working out your salvation. This is what Paul means when he says to work out your salvation with fear and trembling because it is God who works in you. He's not talking about the sort of fear and trembling that expresses doubt in Christ, but the fear and trembling that should come upon us when we recognize how hopeless we are without him. It's the fear that reminds us to keep walking with him because without him, we are lost. It's the sort of fear that causes us to appreciate the salvation that we have and to continue doing the things that are consistent with that salvation. To continue manifesting it. Continuing to show and bear fruit because we know that those who don't continue to show and bear fruit really are without Christ. If you have no good works, no fruit to show for the faith that you claim to have, then it's probable that you aren't really saved. Just like our pastor was saying earlier. 1 John 3, verses 9 to 10 says, No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning, because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God, and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. Again, good works don't save us. Good works don't keep us. But as John also teaches us in 1 John 2, only those who continue in the faith were ever saved to begin with. Only those who continue to work out their salvation were ever saved to begin with. 
prayer and trembling that Paul is talking about comes when we recognize that we are hopeless without God. It comes when we recognize that God will not be mocked. We can't just fake our way into heaven saying that we believe in him and then living as though we don't. Living lives that show us to be without the work of God in us. Brothers and sisters, those who work out their own salvation with fear and trembling realize these truths and seek to live in light of them. A word of warning to anyone hearing me today. The sad reality is that there are those who profess to be Christians but are not. As the scriptures say, there are those who honor Jesus with their lips, but their hearts are far from him. As I mentioned before, there are those who seem to be in the faith, but eventually show themselves to not be in the faith. They show this by the fact that they don't continue in the faith and continue in righteousness. Remember one of the things Paul teaches us here is that Christians are to do good works consistent with their salvation. And they ought to do it with fear and trembling since God is the one who works in them. So what do we say of someone who doesn't do the good works consistent with the salvation that they claim to have? What do we say of someone in whom there is no fear concerning his weaknesses before God? What do we say of someone in whom there is no trembling before God on account of recognizing their own inability to do anything good in and of themselves? What do we say of those who call themselves Christians but feel no desire to read their Bibles and pray? What do we say of those who call themselves Christians but feel no desire to come to church and be with other believers? They're happier in the presence of unsaved people. What do we say about those who call themselves Christians but feel no compulsion to repent of sin when confronted about it? Those who stubbornly continue on in disobedience as a pattern of life. The sad truth is that these these people may not be saved at all. There is no fruit on the tree of their professed faith. I'll give you the same warnings that Paul gave to the Corinthians for everyone here. Let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Examine yourselves. To see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. If you call yourself a Christian but are lax when it comes to obedience. And feel no fear and trembling when it comes to doing the will of God. Then perhaps you have never really been saved and still need to repent. Your soul is still in danger of the wrath of God. Having said that though. I'm sure that even those of us who do have assurance of our salvation at times feel doubts especially when at times we fail to work out our salvation the way that we should but the good news is that Paul provides us with some comfort here remember he says for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure God is the one who is ultimately behind all of our good desires and deeds Those of us who are honest about our own 
abilities and strength to obey God and live righteously know that we are actually quite weak and frail. Our hearts are easily dulled when it comes to the things of God. We're easily distracted and drawn away from God. So indeed the prospect of consistently day by day working out your salvation is a daunting one. But we need not be discouraged. God is at work in us. This text is teaching us that God both empowers and brings about the obedience that he commands of his children. We see here that the promises made by God in Ezekiel 36 are actively being fulfilled here in the New Testament. Ezekiel prophesied of God, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness. And from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Listen. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. God causes those whom he has redeemed to walk in his statutes and God causes them to be careful to obey his commands. So what should this mean for us? Well, as I've already said, this truth ought to cut off all haughtiness and pride from our hearts. We can't take credit for God's work. We have no grounds for boasting in ourselves. So it means that we should always live our lives in humility. Since even when we attain to the highest levels of Christian maturity, it is all ultimately God's doing. So what else should God's work in us mean for how we live our lives? Well, it should spur us on to greater diligence in our Christian walk. That should be obvious since Paul just told us to be obedient and to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. That is an explicit application of Paul's teaching as it is directly stated. But think also of what it implies. If God makes it his concern to work in us and to incline and empower our wills and bodies to righteousness, then why should our concerns for ourselves be any different? Do you realize God wants us to be righteous and so he works to that end. God's interests and goals are clearly shown to us here. So our interests and goals ought to be in keeping with His. If God wants me to be righteous, then I should want to be righteous. If God wants me to be holy, then I should want to be holy. If God wants to work in me both to will and to do, then I should want to will and to do. Here's a question. Do we want for ourselves what God wants for us? You may want to spend your evening watching TV and playing video games. But maybe God wants you to spend that time reading your Bible and praying. You may want to keep yourself, rather you may want to keep to yourself so that no one knows what's going on in your life. But God wants you to have meaningful fellowship with other believers. For you to be accountable to other believers as a defense against sin. So that you can grow in righteousness. 
Do you want for yourself what God wants for you? This is yet another reason why we ought to be diligent in our Christian law. Because we ought to want what God wants. Let it not be said that our desires are opposed to God's. Lastly, note the reason why God works in us. It is for His pleasure. God made us, as Ephesians 2.10 says, for good works that we should walk in them. God is pleased when His children obey Him and live righteously. So the application here is quite simple, so I won't belabor the point. If God is pleased by the righteous working out of your salvation, then we should seek to work out our salvation so as to bring pleasure to God. Simple. Ephesians 4.30 says, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Our goal should be to please God and to flee from the things that grieve Him. Brothers and sisters, everything we've looked at this morning should stir up our hearts toward putting more effort into our Christian walk. These two verses are a command against laziness in the faith. We need to be diligent in working out our salvation. We need to be diligent in obeying God and doing the things that are consistent with the faith that we have. We ought to be roused into action by the knowledge that God himself is working in us. We should want to see ourselves growing in righteousness since God himself is working to that end. We should want to please God with our lives in appreciation for what he's done for us. And through it all, we must always remember Jesus who lived a life of perfect obedience to the Father. He accomplished for us what we could not accomplish for ourselves. And that perfect obedience led him to the cross to die in our place, bearing the sins of all those who would put their trust in him. Indeed, he died and was laid in a tomb. But three days later, just as he said he would, he rose to life again, showing that he had defeated death and had indeed paid the price for our sin, reconciling us to God. And so all men, everywhere, are commanded to believe this good news and repent of their sin, to put their trust in Christ and be saved, to put all our hope and trust in the finished work of Jesus. His work saves us. His work has delivered this faith to us. We ought to respond by working out the salvation that was won for us at such a high price. We ought to respond by doing those things that are in keeping with who we are as new creations in Christ. And through it all, we can be confident that we always have God's help as He works in us.